Beyond the Breach, a podcast about how individuals and organizations manage change with a focus on technology's impact on humanity and the nature of cybersecurity risk. In this show, we explore lessons from public service in the past to inform the leadership and management challenges of our digital present. I'm Jonathan Ryber, head of cybersecurity strategy at Lumio, visiting scholar at UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, a former Pentagon official and your host. Today, we're going to talk about our cognitive response to threats and why humanity struggles to respond to complex challenges like cyber conflict and climate change. I'll outline some thoughts, reviewing the thinking of Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert, and then turn to my friend and colleague Jason Healy for his thoughts on how to manage and respond to cyber threats. Jay is a senior research scholar at Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs and co-author of The First History of Cyber Conflict, A Fierce Domain. A former U.S. Air Force officer, Jay served as Director for Cyber Infrastructure Protection at the White House and earlier as a Senior Risk Management Leader at Goldman Sachs in New York and in Asia. He also has the coolest mustache on Earth, and you can see it on our webpage. He's the envy of anyone who's ever tried to grow a mustache. Jay and I just sat on a panel together at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, on the future of technology and threats in Asia. And now we're here in his office in Columbia on New York's Upper West Side looking out over the campus in the city. Hi, Jay. Thanks for coming on the show. Good afternoon. Let's open with a clock. This past January at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock to two minutes to midnight. First set in 1947 by the Bulletin, the doomsday clock measures how close humanity is to nuclear hellfire, or in a word, as Wired Magazine pointed out, doom. In 2007, the Bulletin added climate change to the clock's criteria. In 2017, they added cyber war. This is only the second time that humanity has been this close to midnight. The first was in 1953, after the U.S. and the Soviet Union began testing hydrogen bombs. The second, this year, came after a period of intense climate denialism in the United States. Now, nuclear threats are a clear and present danger to human existence, and have been so since the first bomb was used over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. It's telling that climate change and cyber war have been added to the threat measurement now. Unlike a nuclear explosion, however, which comes with a mushroom cloud, cyber conflict and climate change suffer from the problem of abstraction. Today, climate change threatens humanity's future. Cyber conflict presents a a profound destabilizing challenge to international security. Yet when threats lack a human face or feel abstract and complex, it can be hard to rally support to end them. So how does this problem of abstraction manifest, and what are some lessons for how to affect change going forward? To explore this question, I turn to Daniel Gilbert, as I said, the Edgar Pierce Professor of Psychology at Harvard. Gilbert says, I quote, Humans are exquisitely adapted to respond to immediate problems, such as terrorism, but not so good at more probable but distant dangers like global warming, end quote. Abstract threats fail to naturally trigger our fears and defensive systems. Why is this the case? Gilbert outlines four drivers. First, it is easier to respond if the threat is human versus inanimate. For example, after the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States, it was easy to put a face and a cost to the threat. Al-Qaeda and later ISIS were extremist organizations that sought to kill innocent people. Cybersecurity and climate change 
share one important factor that makes them different. They are faceless. As Gilbert says, the chance of a terrorist striking are far less likely than the ocean swirling around San Francisco or Manhattan from climate change, which is probable. He says, I quote, if aliens want to invade planet Earth, they wouldn't send little green men, they would send climate change. That's a good one. Gilbert's second point is there should be a moral component to trigger humanity's reaction to the threat. He looks again at climate change. He says, I quote, Although all human society have moral rules about food and sex, none has a moral rule about atmospheric chemistry. And so we are outraged about every breach of protocol except Kyoto. End quote. Humanity takes collective action when a threat is clear. The case for moral action has been articulately made and specific objectives have been set. Let's look at one example from climate history. For this, I'll turn to Brandon Kirk Williams, a PhD candidate in U.S. foreign policy history at the University of California at Berkeley, and our research associate for the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Pardon me. One of the most successful examples of collective moral action on climate prior to the recent Paris Agreement was the 1987 Montreal Protocol that slashed the use of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs as they're commonly known. The mass use of CFCs had burned a hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica, and the moral threat was clear. CFCs were causing a hole, and the hole would cause skin cancer. It directly threatened present humanity and future generations. This message resonated especially with President Ronald Reagan, who had been diagnosed with skin cancer in uh, the mid-1980s. So how was the Montreal Protocol born, Brendan? First, society recognized that CFCs were a driving cause of the ozone hole. Then political leaders like Margaret Thatcher, Mexican President Miguel de la Madrid, President Reagan, and others rallied a diverse coalition of states, corporations, and environmental groups to ban the production of CFCs for most consumer and industrial use. And collective action is working, Jonathan. The ozone hole shrank, and it's on track to recede by 2080. This is an example of a moral narrative that worked. Even though the threat was inanimate, it was clear, not abstract. Third, Gilbert's third point, and I think the most important problem he identifies, he writes that humans are not as inclined to act unless the threat is immediate. He writes, quote, we see it as a threat to our futures, not our afternoons. It's easy for individuals to think about their own futures by using dental floss or investing in a 401k, I, I would argue, because we have an acute sense of our own mortality and control over our own actions. For collective risks, however, the brain needs to be trained to think about future risk for society as a whole. And for risks that cross multiple constituencies like climate change or cybersecurity or, or nuclear deterrence, no single individual can affect change. It requires collective action by governments. Gilbert's fourth point is that if you want the human brain to respond, you want to make sure that the threat can be felt as a sudden threat rather than gradual. Slow changes that occur undetected over time, like slowly rising sea levels or, or networks that remain vulnerable for years, they don't quickly trigger the brain to act, not like an impending terrorist attack on the country, which also has a face. My colleagues and I like to tell organizations that someday they will be breached. It's not a question of if, but when, right? Have organizations thought through what a breach will do to their data? It's not a distant future. It's your afternoon, like what Brandon was just talking about. The adversary may sit inside your network for some time, but the breach will be sudden, and the impact of it will be sudden, like an invading army storming your city and stealing your crown jewels out from under your eyes. So, what do we take from Gilbert's analysis? To plan for future threats requires strategy, leadership, and ultimately, 
the communication of a story that gets at the four drivers that Gilbert outlined. The story should name the threat, make it real, make it proximate, and tie specific actions today for a make, to make for a better future. Storytelling plans and strategy are the only ways to deal with strategic uncertainty or a feeling of helplessness about the future. It's the duty of leaders and strategic organizations to face problems head on and make choices. That's what security is about, and that's what Jay and I are going to talk about today. One of the things that really struck me as you were talking was that um, is the sense of helplessness that we get with, with so much that has to deal around cyber. I feel it. I've been in this field for over 20 years now. I've got a master's degree in computer science. And if you asked me to help you, or if one of your listeners said, Jason, can you help me secure this computer? What do I need to do? I'm not sure that I can get it right. Hmm. I can say there's a few things, mm -hmm. but if you pull up one of my computers and say, am I sure that I haven't been hacked by the Russians or the Chinese or by some kid in his basement? Not at all. It has gotten, uh, and it's for a few reasons, right? Hmm. One, it is so complex in what is happening with computers. Uh, back in 1998, maybe I could have helped secure one of our computers because there wasn't much that needed to get done. There were only a few parts, a few bits of software. And now with all of the software that we have, with all of the different devices that we use, with all of the different threats, it has just gotten complex. And when humans are faced with such complexity and say, fix it, we kind of shrink up a little bit. We shrivel up a little bit. And especially when you know there's a, it can feel that way. It, it's almost like a horror movie, right? You know that these dark forces are out there and they're trying to get at us and what we have on our computers, you know, our, our personal details so they can sell them. But they're all faceless. We can't see them. Uh, there's so much uncertainty and unknowability, and these threats are unseen and spooky. Um, and so that reinforces this helplessness because we don't know exactly what we should do about it. Mm -hmm. And that's not great, right? This is a bad, that's a bad place for humans mm -hmm. to be in this condition. And what really strikes me, especially during your, your intro there, is this sense of helplessness doesn't just affect like my mother, when she says, hey, you know, I got this link. Do you think I should click on it? I don't know what I should do. And that sense of uncertainty and fear, mm -hmm. right? Through your experience, you see this right up to the White House in situation room mm -hmm. where elected leaders say, I don't know. What should I do with these, these folks with these black hoodies and these hackers out there? And, and what do we do? So it goes from all the way mm -hmm. um, from the bottom of individual citizens and individual people on the web in whatever country, all the way into the White House and the President of the United States and cabinet secretaries that can call on an incredible array of experts to help them. Yep. Have you seen leaders or executives come in feeling helpless, get smart, and then begin to evolve cognitively? Because that's something I saw in the Pentagon, and I'm curious if you if you saw that as well. And right. So that's been a lot, of my, a lot of my role, and it's one reason why I wrote my book as a history book. And part of my role has been, especially for diplomats, 
generals and in admirals for elected leaders of saying, here's the areas where, like, whatever got you to that place to be a general, an admiral, a diplomat, an elected official, you got there with a set of knowledge and a set of skills and a set of instincts. And what's weird about cyber threats is that those leaders don't know which of those skills, instincts, um, you know, which classes they took um, are useful here and which and will lead to better national security outcomes or better security outcomes and which might make things worse. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm trying to do with a lot of my scholarship and my talks mm -hmm. is, is reinforce them here and say, no, look, once it's past this, it's not a cyber issue. It's a Russia issue. And once they say, oh, this is a Russia issue. Okay, I know what to do about Russia. Mm -hmm. And then they can pick that up. Mm -hmm. um, or say, no, this area like this, um, you know, this might be, this is a different situation. And we'll talk about a few of those, as, I, I think, as we go. Mm -hmm. And maybe your instincts are going to make things worse when we get, if we pursue the way that, that you're used to. And now, of course, it's still early days and we're still figuring out which goes into which category. And that's part of the dangerous part. Yeah, that's a really good point. And have you seen leaders, have you seen light bulbs go off in people's head as, as the cyber threat evolved? And what in particular became more salient in your experience to make them say, you know what, this is real and I need to stand up and, and pay attention? I think certainly when we look back at history, to me, some of the important years were, say, 2003 to 2005, where prior to that, we were still largely worried about, um, it was still hacker groups, lone hackers, nation states were getting involved, but there hadn't been disruptive or destructive attacks. And around 2003 to 2005, it's what we were calling as historians the rise of the professionals where now that's when the Department of Defense really started to get involved and really started to up their investments. You saw our adversaries do that as well. Uh, one of my favorite examples was what you saw happen with criminals, whereas before that you maybe saw groups of hackers that said we're going to do things. Example, Vladimir Levin, a Russian hacker. He hit Citibank in 1995 for millions of dollars. But he was one lone hacker or just one with a couple of buddies. That was changing in that, in that early 2000s time frame. There's a journalist named Misha Glenny that wrote, wrote on, on mafia and organized crime. And I heard him once talk about an example where there was a group in Mexico that was smuggling dope. And it was dangerous, right? They had to worry about their heads getting cut off by the other gangs. They had to worry about cutting the heads off of the other gangs. They had to worry about the police and bribing the police. But as a side job, they were also doing credit card fraud, getting copy, you know, getting people's credit cards um, and selling them on the web or buying goods with them. And after a while, they realized they were making more money from the credit cards than they were smuggling dope. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, forget the drugs. Yeah, we'll just worry about that. And it's you, so you're seeing this very capable, very uh, well-funded, very violent group that then said, "We're going to do this cyber thing instead, and we're going to apply our skills of organization and do this other thing here." Yeah, and, and so yeah. and so you certainly saw that with the U.S. leadership, as you saw more and more generations 
come up that we're working on on this space. Um, the the first Homeland Security Advisor in this administration had been doing cyber. Secretary Nielsen at DHS had been doing cyber. Um, the White House Cyber uh, Advisor, um, a guy named Rob Joyce, had been doing had been doing this for years. So uh, over the last couple of years, you've had a much more mature set of leaders coming in. You know, obviously, that trend started in, in the late Obama administration, mid-Obama administration, but you can see folks that it's not their first time addressing these issues. Right. So these are people who had a cognitive awareness of the threat earlier, worked through it in the institutions, grew up. Paul Nakasone, the head of Cyber Command NSA, is one of them too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the, there is one of those dangers because they know what they've seen, and a lot of them are then applying what they know to this space and it becomes familiar so i think this has been an issue for a lot of the military leaders that get into this space because mm -hmm. they're seeing it as a capability right it's a kind of good thing that you can do to others and a kind of bad thing that others can do to us they so focus on the technical aspects of this uh, overwhelmingly the so a win is a successful engagement and a loss is a engagement that doesn't go right um, and a lot of the thinking about, well, well, okay, that that's true, but how is might this be different from fighting in the air or the land or space? Um, they're so used to the and familiar with the technical aspects um, that I get very worried they're not thinking through the longer aspects of how this might be different. That's very good. So I, um, one of the things that I talk about a lot when when I give talks or to the media is that like leaders should draw from their strengths. This is mm -hmm. fundamentally a leadership yep. and management issue. You shouldn't let the computing and the sort of lack, the, if, you don't, if you're not an expert in code, to keep you from learning, right? Mm -hmm. And the main job that you have as, as an executive to run your organization is to draw on your strengths as a leader. And you, that's what you were talking about too when you were talking about referencing historical examples for generals. So that's a good point, and I think we can revisit it. Um, the one thing I'd, I'd also like to ask you is, do you think that after the Russian attack for the population as a whole in the U.S. or across the globe, that it's become easier to tell people of the need for investment and the need to take cybersecurity more seriously? No. I mean, only to some degree, mm -hmm. right? The Russian, what the Russians did for cybersecurity were actually pretty trivial. I mean, the stuff that they did um, to intrude, the method they did it was a very 20, you know, very 2018, 2019 um, but what they did is their hack would have been familiar to us in the late 1990s, right? Um, they came in and they stole emails. Well, okay. That's what was, I think, especially compelling out of it was what happens with the information. And this is one of the things that we were, we were actually probably a little more prepared for in the 90s um, when we were looking at cyber and information together. Mm -hmm. And right, we created a cyber command. We didn't create a cyber and information command. Mm -hmm. So America uh, and, and every other country that's followed us in our model has developed a lot of counter-hacking hacking and counter-hacking methodologies, but not many institutions to deal with what do we do, the deluge of information and misinformation and disinformation that's out there. I mean, really significant change, I think, that was probably even more significant than that where some of the companies have been getting hacked over the past couple of years. Uh, companies have been getting hacked before, but now with some of the more recent breaches over the last few years, you're seeing institutional shareholders that are 
putting suits in against or, or voting against, recommending votes against boards of directors because they were felt not to be taking care of shareholder value because they were taking cybersecurity not seriously with, with C-suite officials getting fired because they weren't following um, a stand, like not even best practice, but standard practice. And so with that, you're seeing this, I think, real ex- extending that out where now every board director or every board has one board director that's been through this kind of incident or knows someone that has. And that, I think, on the, on the private sector side and, and the behavior of companies has been a much larger change than, than what the Russians did. So you think following the breaches, the companies are feeling pressure to, to upgun their knowledge, upgun their capabilities, to have people who, who engage with shareholders, people who have public roles, to be more in tune with the issue. Obviously, there's this new bill that just came up in the House to sort of to mandate that, that there's a certain amount of expertise within boards in cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And that would seem to ratify your judgment. Um, do, you, do you think then that like the leadership is like, we're going to feel some acute pain, so we have to get smart? Yeah, and it's certainly if I'm looking at a company and saying, all right, what's the best chance they're going to be, if I'm going to guess if they're getting it, is to look who they have on their board and see if any have some kind of good technology background that can help um, this this company understand these issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's what I like in this space, right? You had mentioned in the intro about the ozone hole and saying there it was a relatively straightforward of saying, all right, well, we know these particular things are causing this environmental impact. Let's have this change that's going to that's going to give us the best leverage to to affect that. And that's where the kind of solution I like for cybersecurity well uh, mm-hmm. the most, where we can say, all right, the attacker has the advantage over the defender. So what are those investments that we can do? Where the smallest change, I mean, it really almost nudges, right? The smallest changes are going to give us the largest output, so the defenders have the most advantage. And convincing boards of directors that they need to take this seriously is absolutely, I think, one of those. What would be some tactics that you would take if you were given a bull, like a big bully pulpit, right? right? You could go on all the radio, go on all the TV, which is great, you know. Maybe yeah. so, I hope someday that yeah, happens. And my mustache is made for TV, not, not podcasts, but good, yep. <laughs> we'll get a picture of you. Yeah. Um, what would be some of the messages that you would tell the population as a whole about cybersecurity, and you can then you can break it down uh, further if you like. Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm even going to challenge the premise just a bit. Please do, because I don't think we can get ourselves to a good position by taking our message to 300 million Americans or to five billion humans and make change. Right? Um, it can help, like it can with environmental. And we'll come back to environmental. Um, it can help us make the moral case, for example. But this is a different kind of of place than the air, the land, the sea. It's made by humans. And so uh, we've got a few places where we can make those big changes, right? When you were saying that Cyber Command was the best, one of the best paybacks on investment, like, well, no, I think the the, uh, Bill Gates, when he was at Microsoft in 2003, he said, we are really going to push security at Microsoft. And they really continued things like Windows Update. You know, when your computer pops up and say, hey, it's time for me to update. We had to invent that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't cheap for Microsoft to do that or for Apple or Android or whatever uh, device that you have. It's not cheap to do that. But the payoff we've gotten from that 
you know, say it cost $10 million to put that in place. Automatic We have gotten, I'm not kidding, a million times the payback Mm -hmm. from whatever that initial investment would be. Mm -hmm. Now, on public policy, um, in addition to, of course, getting on great podcasts like this to convince people, uh, I would get on a plane. If there's one person in the world you could convince, it wouldn't be the president of the United States or any world leader, as you think of, I would fly to Omaha, convince Warren Buffett that he should take cybersecurity seriously in all of his companies and only invest in companies if he knows the intellectual property hasn't been stolen over the networks. And you can make an incredible change with that, with the business leaders all over the world saying, cybersecurity, wow, okay. Um, you know, they're doing it. So, or, you know, Warren Buffin's doing it. So mm-hmm. we better do it too. Mm-hmm. And then I'd take, get on the plane in Omaha and I'd fly to Sacramento and convince CalPERS, the California pension system. Do you know, before Y2K, they went to every one of the companies that they invest in. You know, this very activist shareholder to make sure they're making the most money for the California retirees. And they, at Y2K, they went to all of their companies and said, tell us what you were, you're doing so we know you're going to be a good investment for us and that you're taking this risk seriously. Hmm. So let's get those, those activist shareholders yep. to be getting out there and knocking on those doors at those board meetings and saying, what are you doing so that you're not going to lose our money and you're not going to make us and the people that depend on us go broke? Those are good messages. I like that. Um, maybe I can buy you a plane ticket. <laughs> Warren Buffett, if you're listening, please please let us <laughs> in when you knock on your door and the CalPERS people will be seeing you second. That's good guidance. Now, if I can pull, because in your introductory comments, you talked about the environment several times and I mm-hmm. really liked that. Good, let's dig in. Because we've been treating, as we say, how are we going to fix these problems of cybersecurity? Right, you walked down a model to fix that that was very natural for you. You've been a very senior Department of Defense official. So you came down that with a very DOD-focused mindset on that, just like a lot of our colleagues in Silicon Valley. They say, well, cybersecurity is obviously a technical problem, so let's invent some really good technical solutions. There's nothing wrong with either of those. But we've got to say, well, what's going to help us get the most impact and it might look at other models. This is why I love taking an environmental mindset, right? How do we know if we are limiting climate change? Give me one number that said how we, if we are gonna know in 50 years if we've limited climate change. GHG is going down. So uh, the total parts per million of carbon mm-hmm. in the atmosphere is decreasing significantly. Yep, yeah. and um, what? Not even significantly. <laughs> and so I'm going to pick up that one. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that's uh, that's number number one. What number number two? Well, you don't want the atmosphere to go up by two degrees Celsius. Right, right. I'm mean, hopefully significantly less than that, one point five degrees. And so, these are the kinds of things that I love that we can take on board, right? Because if we say, all right, what are we going to do to get to 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 keep to two degrees Celsius? Well, what I love about the environmental model is that we all have a role in that, right? You talked about, we know we have to recycle. That's something that you and I and all of the listeners can do. We can be part of that because it is up to us, right? You know, think globally, act locally. We also know 
that we don't want to impose environmental troubles on someone else. And those are, these are all things that we haven't done when we think of cybersecurity as a problem, right? So uh, one of our colleagues, Rob Kanaki, the Council on Foreign Relations, and I, we wrote a, a paper on getting to zero botnets. Now, botnets are if a hacker is out there and he collects 1,000, 10,000, sometimes a million computers. He hacks a million computers, all automated. And then he or she uses them for their evil purposes, like sending spam or conducting a, a, an attack that knocks a website offline. So we've said, let's borrow this environmental mindset and say, let's have zero botnets. Now, of course, we're never going to get to zero. In that way, it's like saying we want zero nuclear weapons. Or New York City, where we are, it has a program called uh, Vision Zero. But getting to, getting to zero for nuclear weapons became a rallying cry. It, it became a, a rallying goal. cry, yeah. even mm-hmm. though we know it's probably never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And here, um, it started, I, I believe, in Sweden, but New York City has followed this Vision Zero of zero, zero pedestrian deaths, zero traffic deaths, because less is better. So we've said, let's, let's pick that up and let's say zero botnets. Good. And what can all of us do? Mm-hmm. It's a different reason for us to do the inconvenience of keeping our computers safe and secure, right? We've both heard people say, well, there's nothing on my computer the Chinese would, would want. I don't have to keep it secure. But you're imposing now that risk on others yep. in a way that we would consider unethical for environmental. If you said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be breathing my own car's exhaust. Doesn't matter. We don't do that anymore, right? No, you have to get it fixed because um, we don't want to impose that on others. Yeah, that reminds me also for the deterrence report. One of the recommendations from the deterrence report is it used to be, at least in my thinking, I was like, you know, we don't need to respond to every single incident, every single hack as a government. And the deterrence report actually found the opposite. It's kind of like um, Rudy Giuliani's policy about crime on the subway. Like every time there's a piece of spray paint on the subway, you fix it. It doesn't matter how small it is. You have to push back against it. Yeah, I, I disagreed with that aspect of the report pretty deeply. That wasn't my voice on that because, right, you're going to what's comfortable there. It mm-hmm. may absolutely work the way that you just described. Mm-hmm. But the Department of Defense and, and, other, and other hawks have just picked that up and said, well, it works the same way. And when I say, well, show me a bit of evidence that it works that way, it's extremely difficult. As a matter of fact, you yourself said at the beginning of this, when you opened, Iran got hit by the Stuxnet attack first. And only after that did it say, you know what, we're going to attack back outside. Before mm. that, it was almost entirely focused on smothering domestic dissent. And after it took a punch, it did exactly what you said we should do. We shouldn't allow this to stand. We should go back at the Americans. And so well, where let, does this let end? Let me clarify. I, I'm not arguing that if somebody hacks a country or a company, then um, we have to hack them back. Right. In fact, I'm saying if somebody hacks us, that uh, let's say you steal a bunch, a whole bunch of credit card mm-hmm. information from a bank, mm-hmm. it's it may be more appropriate to indict or sanction. That may not, or or simply Good to point. impose another another cost. I'm definitely not arguing right. for hacking back. But you see this very strongly in um, so the current head of U.S. Cyber Command, a very very thoughtful leader named General Paul Nakasone. And you can really see this, and it, and it brings us back to emotion and cognition. Mm-hmm. So good job, you, because you see his comments Thanks, of 
uh, he had a re- recently some great uh, an interview and essay in one of the military quarterlies called Joint Forces Quarterly, uh-huh. where he said, you know, we saw cyber conflict wasn't that bad until around 2013 when we saw disruptive attacks from our adversaries, like the Iranians you mentioned. And in 2014, those attacks got destructive. Again, mostly, you know, especially Iranian attacks. But he didn't mention the Stuxnet attack. He didn't mention the Snowden revelations. He didn't mention the Arab Spring or the the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, which our adversaries, whether they're Chinese, Russian, Iranian, North Korean, um, saw as the U.S. was potentially throwing the first punch in these cases. Interesting. And our adversaries, uh, things like deterrence work very differently when your adversaries are sure they're punching back and not punching first. Mm -hmm. And so this is getting into, you know, this emotion and cognition, right? It's very easy for us in the United States to say, well, we're the reasonable ones and the actions that we've taken were for the benefit of the world and were the right things for stability. But what those other folks are doing is unreasonable and yeah. that's evil. Yeah. And so it is one of those things that as we're looking forward at our new cyber strategies, that it's an experiment. And we say, all right, let's look at this. Let's see what evidence we're getting. And let's see which of these competing hypotheses might be the case. The concept of cognition when you're dealing with international relations, deterrence and maintaining international peace and security hinges on perception mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and how you perceive what the actor's doing. And you can't necessarily prove that one thing is causing another, even if you have the most exquisite intelligence in the world. The positive story for cybersecurity is that you know you can take certain kinds of actions on your network that will significantly improve Mm -hmm. your posture. So my message to companies, and and coming in as a Defense Department official, I want to inform you about what Cyber Command is doing. I want to inform you about how states behave. Mm -hmm. But my message to companies is, you know, advocate and, and pay attention to what's going on internationally. Be prepared for someone to hack you. But there's actually certain steps that you you know you can take to secure your data centers or your interior that hasn't been done that's proven to be able to prevent kinds of attacks. And that will help right. people on your board to overcome a, 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 a lack of action around the threat. So you then, as a, as a board member, as a CISO, as a CEO, your job is to convince people and tell a story, a simple cybersecurity story, so that change happens. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'm going to come back. I'd like to come back at some point on that, on that tit for tat and that back and forth. Because um, I think there's an important point there, but I love what you had just said. And that brings us to the environmental model again. Because you had said, you know, the parts per million of carbon dioxide is, is such a great measurement yeah. uh, and, and other greenhouse gases. And it struck me, I was reading The Economist a couple of years ago, and they had a chart with an article that said, uh, that listed, here are the interventions that, that we have made over the decades. So uh, you had mentioned the Montreal Protocol, which was to take CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, out of the atmosphere. And there was an Economist article a couple years ago that said, what have we done? What have been the interventions by humankind over the past decades that have taken the most carbon dioxide parts per million equivalent out of the air? And they said, basically, as far as they could tell, almost no one had asked the question in that case of saying, when we're deciding what we ought to do next to make the biggest difference for climate change, let's look back at what has already made the biggest change and let's do more of that. 
mm-hmm. especially if some of them are really inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the Montreal Protocol was way more effective than like nuclear power and, and renewable subsidies and everything else combined. Why was that? It was um, – it just had such a large impact – it was cooperative and that the chemical companies largely said, yeah, we can go along with this. We've got, we've got other things that we can do. Mm-hmm. And you just had so everything aligned. a specific thing for them to meet on, on CFCs. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even done to reduce parts per million of carbon dioxide equivalent. Mm-hmm. It was done for CFCs. Mm-hmm. But it had the effect of reducing. Mm-hmm. And it gave me this realization of, well, that's one of those models that we can do so that we don't feel helpless. We can say, boy, let's, you know, let's take these environmental models that make you and I want to recycle or that we don't want to have a polluting car so that we're not imposing costs on others. Mm-hmm. And let's say, and so we did this work for the New York Cyber Task Force here in New York to say, well, what have been the innovations that we have done as cyber defenders that have given us the biggest advantage over attackers at the greatest scale and least cost. So we came up things, well, of course, we had passwords, we have cloud, we had inventing new concepts, new organizational concepts, like chief information security officer. We had to invent the role of chief information security officer. And we said, here is where we got so much of these benefits. Let's do more of that. And to tie that to a measurement, Mm -hmm. I did a, a co-authored a report with Rob Kanaki of the Council on Foreign Relations where we said, let's get to zero botnets. And Good. so if the measurement for environment is, I don't know, you know, reducing the parts per million or reducing the, you know, keeping uh, climate warming to two degrees C, let's set that political vision of getting to zero botnets. And then let us technologists do what we can. Let the ISPs, the internet service providers, help. Let the cybersecurity companies help as we all try and get to that, almost like you might have done um, in the Paris process or others of saying, all right, what can all of us do to keep ourselves to two degrees or hopefully less? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good – I mean, it's the setting practical goals for complex problems, mm-hmm. identifying feasible solutions, and then holding yourself accountable is like – transformatively better. I, I really like this idea of zero botnets. Um, I, I think that for, for companies, for, for the cybersecurity capability mm-hmm. that Illumio provides, right, we are um, helping companies to segment the interior of their, of their yeah. data centers to protect their crown jewels. You identify your most important applications and then you, 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 you do a map of the network. You see how all of your workloads interact. Mm-hmm. And if you, for, to protect those most important applications or, or, or workloads, you do ring fencing and you set rules for how the servers interact with one another, yep. right? So that's that's how the product yep. works. And people who've people who've come to our webpage know all about that, and we, we can talk more about it whenever we want. But that's exactly but the point, yeah. The point that I'm going to say is, folks who come in and they say, "Okay, I know I need to microsegment my, my networks. I know my data center is vulnerable." And there's always there's a little bit of like, "Where do I start?" Yeah. yeah and there's a little bit of anxiety associated yeah. with it. And so the the message is, "Don't boil the ocean. Start by identifying your crown mm-hmm, jewels. Mm-hmm. Once you you know, once you've identified the crown jewels, if you often know what they are, then you can sort of map yeah. the interior of your network. These are good first steps, and then you can set a ring fence around around your applications and protect them against against attacks. And, and this gets to how much, as we were doing uh, New York Cyber Task Force here in New York, that was trying to find out what's been the best innovations, and there were those that a small change had this big impact." 
And so switching to cloud, great impact. Yep. And this kind of thing, right? Is it buying you additional protection? Well, it, it's limiting the blast radius. So if something bad does happen, that it's making sure that it doesn't that it doesn't spread throughout. Boy, just imagine if um, you know the intelligence community had that with Snowden, right? Great, he could do damage one place, but maybe that present prevents it from going out and doing more. And that that helps us get past this helplessness, I think, to take this in chunks and tie with goals. And it reminds me of the different ways that we can keep score in these measurements that uh, if I were a CISO that I'd want to implement or when I talk to executives I talk about. And two of our colleagues, Richard Baitlick and Dmitry Alperovich, I really like their models because mm -hmm. Richard's model said too often when we're trying to measure our cybersecurity, he uses a sports analogy and say we're measuring, well, how quickly can my players run 50 yards or how accurately can they throw a ball or how hard can they hit? When what you really need to know if you are winning is, well, what's the score? And the score is, do if I have zero adversaries in our networks, mm -hmm. we're winning. Mm -hmm. If the number is one or more, well, then we're probably losing. And so he really talks about how we can look at Specific this differently. Yeah, and Dmitry yeah. Perovich took that in a slightly different way. He operationalized it to say, all right, he had a one ten sixty rule, and so that if someone clicks on a link and they and their computer gets hacked, that a great company should be able to figure that out in a minute, mm -hmm. and within ten minutes they should be able to identify what happened. Mm -hmm. So not just detect it, but figure out, hey, these was this was definitely a bad thing, and then boot them in sixty minutes. Yeah. And what I like about your product is that might buy you more time, mm -hmm. right? Because if you can stop them from getting out, then that buys you more time. As, uh, to to do your response, and that time is really critical. Yeah, I mean, so the the average the average dwell time for an intruder to be inside a data center or a network is between mm -hmm. six months and a year. Yeah. So yeah. once they're in, they're in. And like the one of the one of the phrases that I like to use for for us is, um, if you've segmented your networks, if you've segmented your, mm -hmm. your workloads and applications and, and servers, they may be able to get three servers, but they won't get three three thousand. Right. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah, locked yeah. in. They can't move yeah, laterally. Limit the blast radius. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And and what I like about how Dimitri or what I like about Dimitri's work, you know, he's giving it a, a, a goal that's gonna seem impossible to some mm -hmm. of detect in a minute, kick him out in, or identify in ten, kick him out in sixty. Mm -hmm. But hey, that's one ten sixty. That might be a great organization. Mm -hmm. So if you're not there yet, well, look for things that are more reasonable. Actually, I brought this up for the cyber policy office back in 2011 of saying, yeah, so, all right, so if you can't hit 11060, you know, aim for one hour, 10 hours, 60 hours. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. still way better. <laughs> you know, that yeah. gives you 10 times. I think and, and the CEO and the board can say, but we want to get, we want to have that by next year and have that again. And in three years, we want to maybe get to something like 11060 minutes. Yeah. That's a good one. I, I think so tactically that those those sorts of numbers make good sense. One of the things that I that I found right, I, I mentioned the quadrennial defense review being enforced on the Pentagon from mm -hmm. the outside. It sort mm -hmm. of forces strategy. Mm -hmm. And some boards, and I think like well-established banks and companies all over the world, they say, you know what, we need to be strategic. We need to red team our business practices, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's cyber or otherwise. And we're going to force that kind of habit on us. And I like to talk about it as a strategic habit. And it works as an individual. Like, if you know, you know, you need to cut your cholesterol. You, cut, you stop eating meat, 
you start getting exercise, you change your calendar. And maybe you set overambitious goals, but once you set a habit, a regular habit mm -hmm. of checking in and trying to achieve your objective, that actually is kind of, that's a strategy, right? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering in your experience with Goldman Sachs, in the White House, as a researcher, what kinds of effective leaders or strategic habits you've seen where organizations yeah. have gone through a security transformation yeah. to, to drive down risk, whether it's in cyber or even the tsunami stuff you were doing in Asia? One of the things that we found in this New York Cyber Task Force was that we tend to, of course, we've got to do the technological innovations, right? That's how you're getting that 11060. But we also, we tend to overlook the operational innovations. We had to invent the role of Chief Information Security Officer in 1995. We had to invent information sharing and analysis centers in 1998. We had to come up with doctrines like the cyber kill chain, which is it's just an idea, right? It's free of a different way to try and think about your defense. Mm -hmm. And so we really push on these operational innovations. So my time at Goldman Sachs, I was really impressed. Every quarter, the global COOs, of the business units, so the equity COO, the, the fixed COO, I'm sorry, the fixed income COO, they, they would meet every month. But every quarter, when they would be done with their meeting, they would take off their COO hat and they'd put on their hats as the, the firm's business resilience committee and say, what are, let's review our investments and our progress on information security, on business continuity, on crisis management, and physical security. That was every quarter? Every quarter. And so, and so for them, the investments in, in business resilience, I mean, they were, they were extremely modest compared to the revenue numbers and the investments that they were used to making. So they said, boy, you know, we don't have crisis management. It's not going to cost us. It's going to cost us single digit millions per year. That's an easy decision for when they're in that. And it was such a great operational model mm -hmm. to the make sure the right thing was yeah. happening. Yeah. And, and you had talked about strategic habit. Internally, we thought, of, we thought about it as muscle memory, of the way that we would do exercises all of the time. And it's one of those things, of course, we've got to invest in technology. But when we're investing in resilience, for example, by a business resilience committee, when we're doing regular exercises to say, all right, let's improve our ability, those exercises, that, that agility, the investments in agility and resilience, are general purpose investments, right? If you go out and you buy a new firewall or a new anti-denial of service attack tool, well, it's great and you need to do it, but it's only going to protect you against anti-denial of service. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're practicing your board of directors, your C-suite, your security teams, your business teams, so they, they can respond more quickly in agility, it almost doesn't matter what that initial hazard is, that initial crisis that puts them into that mode, mm -hmm. they're going to be better at responding. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that's why I think that strategic habit of getting used to dealing with disruption mm -hmm. um, can really help over time. Yeah, that's, and let me, I mean, one of the reasons why I decided to come to Illumio ultimately is because if you assume breach, if you know the adversary is going mm -hmm. to break in and you know something's going to happen, you want to have a technology and you want to train your teams and build teams in, within your organization around a technology that can act for all, the, the broadest range of threat factors as possible. Yeah. So folks, folks, once someone asked me in Washington, D.C., somebody from the Navy, they said, can your capability prevent bad things from happening at the edge? 
And ultimately, when you make a technological choice, you want it to work for as broad a range of threats mm -hmm. as possible. I said, yeah, of course it would, because we're securing the interior of the data center. Whether someone's breaking into exfiltrate, breaking in to do destructive attacks, or breaking in to do data manipulation, it's going to prevent the intruder from yeah. doing all those things and moving to the edge. Now, so that, but the reason why I'm so interested in the cognitive question is, how do leaders think about not just the near-term requirements of keeping an intruder out, but doing the insurance investment of a defense and depth strategy? Beyond that, how do they then think about life? And, or how do they then think about cyber insurance? Beyond that, how do they think about backup and business continuity practices, like what you were talking about at Goldman? Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to folks taking the time out of their calendars, assigning time, mm -hmm. putting people on it, holding themselves accountable to a red team in practice. Yeah. And so I, I liked your Goldman point, and I like the quarterly resilience meeting. Yeah. Are there other? Do you have any other examples? We can get the internet to be more defensible. We can have, to be, we can bequeath to our kids and our grandkids a more secure internet than we have today. If we are doing these things that are giving the defender the greatest advantage over attackers at the largest scale and the least cost. And we can do that when we're looking at the entire cyberspace as a whole and actions for the platform companies and the internet service providers. We can do that at the level of CEOs and, uh, and C-suite and boards of directors to improve individual companies by using that. And we can absolutely do it in each of our own lives. And by using the tools um, that are out there, which don't have to be that complex um, to improve each of our own security. I mean, we can do it. We don't have to surrender. We don't have to surrender to that helplessness. That's awesome, Jay. Thank you very much. Thanks to Courtney Blaskauer, our Head of Creative Services, Brian Thayer, our Senior Media Manager, and Brandon Williams, PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley and our Research Associate here at Illumio. Thanks for listening.